here. So what I want to do today is I want to, um, so I've made a bit of a high level outline of the big principles from the entire course and I want to go through those sort of with a view to how they all fit together and to highlight the sort of high level concepts that you really want to feel like you know. I did explain last class and I'll reiterate today that my approach to grading these exams is in essence one-third issue spotting, one-third setting out the correct legal frameworks for analyzing the issues, and one-third showing a deep understanding of the, of the concepts. Um, that last one is, is a little bit vague sounding, but yeah, when I do read some exams, I find that there's just a, a depth of knowledge that comes through. and. Um, if you do a pure issue spotting type framework, you don't necessarily account for that. So what we're going through today should probably help you with sort of the first two of those ideas. It'll remind you of the issues you might be looking for, and hopefully we'll have some chance to review sort of the frameworks that are used to analyze those issues, particularly the procedural fairness and substantive review frameworks. Uh, but the deep understanding, obviously you can't, review that in two hours, that's sort of where your studying comes in, if that makes sense. Um, I hope everybody uh, has uh, received the exam, the practice exam, had a look at it. I, I did have a change of heart. I had planned on doing two fact patterns, but when I wrote it out that way, it actually increased the length and complexity of the exam as opposed to figuring out one ish, or one fact pattern that could sort of encompass many of the issues that we've come across in this course. Um, I haven't yet set the final exam, I'm working on that still, but it will look similar in um, length and sort of complexity to the practice exam. So uh, it won't be the exact same issues, uh, I'm sure some issues will arise again, but um, it, it, you shouldn't feel surprised or sort of like there's been a bait and switch when you see the final exam, this is my hope if you've gone through the practice exam. While we're going through this overview today, I do really encourage questions because um, you know, I may be just beating a dead horse on things that you understand fully, or I may sort of assume that things have landed um, when they may seem a bit fuzzy. And I promise you, if you're confused about something, somebody else is also, and probably most people also are. So don't, don't hesitate to raise your hand at all. Um, are there any questions before I get started? All right, let's get right into it. So this review is going to broadly follow the way we went through the material in the course. Um, and of course, we started the course with a high level idea of admin law. And I'm gonna start right again with my um, beloved circles on the board. I think we, we wanna be able to make sure that we have in our mind at all times, are we talking about the judiciary supervising the executive the judiciary supervising the legislature, that is a charter challenge. Are we thinking about the executive assessing the constitutionality of legislation? You know, that's sort of the Cuddy Chicks idea. Are we talking about the executive um, perhaps violating the charter in its own right and the judiciary checking that, that's charter values. You know, all these different concepts land in different sort of permutations of these uh, three circles interacting with each other and if you're, clear as to which sign of circle you're in or which circles are interacting, that should help you have that 
high-level understanding, that high-level um, sort of situation within the broad roadmap of admin law. So um, keep this in mind. Uh, I, I do love to see uh, you know if one of these more complex questions comes up where you're thinking about, say, the executive ascertaining the constitutionality of legislation that it's applying, um, to, if you can mention that tension, that dynamic, that this is the executive being asked to assess the constitutionality of the legislature's actions, you know, that type of a framing will help me understand that you understand this. Um, so the first thing besides these three circles you want to think about is you know, what is the executive? And we've talked about that right at the start, uh, and I hope you've seen throughout the course of this class that it's, um, it's extremely broad. The executive is any number of different entities of government. It is the entities of government that you're most likely to interact with in your day-to-day -day life. Um, and you want to fundamentally think any body or person exercising power that's given to them by legislation or through a crown prerogative power, they're part of the executive. Um, incredibly broad, and so you, know, you wanna know when you're thinking and talking about the executive. The next concept that we, um, we touched on to sort of set the stage for the course was this idea of there being a tension as between two broad theories of law. Um, we use the terminology legal formalism and legal realism at the outset of the course. We haven't really come back to that terminology much, but the concepts we've come back to many times. And fundamentally, this gets at the idea of is there one single correct interpretation of the law? Or can different people have different reasonable interpretations of the law? That the law can mean different things, there can be different interpretations, and both may be defensible. Um, of course, I mentioned that at the outset because that's sort of the, the difficult conceptual leap you have to take in order to accept the idea that when we get to substantive judicial review, we will defer even on questions of law. And this ties into that broader idea about the rule of law moving away from a rule of judges, judges having um, a monopoly over the final say on the law, to a broader conception of the rule of law, which allows the law to be also sort of the provenance of these administrative bodies who may have the final say so long as it's reasonable, their interpretation will follow. So that high level idea legal formalism versus legal realism you want to have in the back of your mind. And you want to also remember that it um, can be, it can help explain why there can be these very passionate arguments about how much deference an admin tribunal should have. You have the dicey idea that there really ought not to be these tribunals if they can be avoided and that the, the structure of this, you know, English uh, in its roots, governance requires these courts to have the final say, then you have the more flexible, modern admin law idea that is largely championed by Justice Abella of deference of the tribunals being able to have that final say. And you know, 
you can't say one or the other is right. They're, they're, depends on your outlook, depends on your sort of core beliefs about what the law is. So I want you to have that in the back of your mind just because it helps, it helps frame the tensions, helps explain why these issues uh, come up and also have such passionate advocates on, on both sides. Um, just two more high-level things I wanted to just highlight at the outset. Privative clauses, you need to know why those things don't work uh, as they look like they might work to completely oust judicial review. And when you're thinking about privative clauses, you want to think that it all ties back into the idea that the executive has to stay within its power. And if they've done something that is purely outside of their power, that cannot stand. And we've we landed that idea with the sort of absurd examples of you know, workers' compensation board orders you to go fix their kitchen. It doesn't make sense. They can't possibly have that power. So no matter what the privative clause says, uh, we cannot let that order be enforceable. That's where the courts intervene. And that's the courts keeping these tribunals fundamentally within their jurisdiction. And that is why when the tribunal steps outside of its jurisdiction, regardless of how strong the privative clause is, the court feels like it must be able to intervene. And then that is why ultimately we say that all judicial review is in substance jurisdictional. We're always asking if the tribunal has just departed from the jurisdiction the legislature intended them to have. And then you want to remember that that directly resonates in those two presumptions. The presumption the legislature intended the tribunals to act reasonably and the presumption that the legislature intended the tribunals to provide a fair process. So if either of those presumptions you know, cannot be, uh, or if, if you've violated those presumptions, the courts will say you've exceeded your jurisdiction. And that ties into another concept that you want to just be very clear on. So when we're thinking about judicial review, Generally, we are thinking about these presumptions. I presume you're supposed to act fairly. I presume you're supposed to act reasonably. But what can the legislature always do? It can be explicit otherwise, right? They can say, no, you don't have to provide that uh, process that the common law might say fairness demands. You can be patently unreasonable, not just you know, on the common law standard of reasonable. And the courts will give effect to those um, provisions generally, because ultimately, again, what are we doing? We're just making sure the executive stays within the scope of the jurisdiction the legislature intended to give them. The one caveat is you could potentially bring a constitutional challenge to the legislation then, saying, well, the legislation um, you know, violates the Constitution by setting up this unfair process or by uh, precluding judicial review um, in too broad of a fashion. 
But you want to think if you're there, if you're doing that type of an argument, you know what you're really asking is the court to intervene in relation to the actions of the legislature. So absent a constitutional concern, you want to think the guiding principle is always legislative intent. What did the legislature intend to allow? All right, that's a, that was a big dump. Is there any questions about that? Uh, that that's kind of complex. But if that all sounds vaguely familiar or you know pretty familiar, then I think you know you're you probably have a good base to, to proceed forward with. Um, so I said there can be a challenge to the legislation on the basis that it um, is too preclusive of judicial review, that it does too much to bar the courts from overseeing the tribunal's jurisdiction and whether they stayed within that jurisdiction. And if you remember, it may, this is a tricky one, but you want to remember what's the basis for that um, type of a constitutional challenge? Where does that or is that found in the Constitution? There you go, exactly. It's that somewhat obscure Section 96 idea that the superior courts must be able to retain their fundamental powers as a superior court, and only the superior courts are going to have those fundamental powers. So if you make a tribunal that's got such broad jurisdiction that it can do basically whatever it wants to with no limits, well, you've actually, in essence, created a superior court. That's the nature of a superior court, that they have inherent jurisdiction to make any order they see fit. So that's a, I'm glad that you picked up on that. That's a, that's a nuanced point, but I, that's an important one to have in the back of your mind. So that is, you know, I, I think at the highest level, the, the core concepts that you want to know in order to launch into more detail on administrative law. Um, when we got out of these high concepts and got into a little bit more detail, we started by spending, I think, two classes, maybe a bit more than two classes, on the concept of the rule of law. And the concept of the rule of law is absolutely central to administrative law advocacy and uh, decision-making, especially in the judicial review context. And as we saw, I think, throughout the course, inevitably you'll see parties, you'll see judges hearkening back to the rule of law as justification for um, you know, their position or the way the court has decided the case. So you want to be clear on what the rule of law concept means, and fundamentally it means three broad principles. The law is supreme over officials of government as well as private individuals, and thereby preclusive of arbitrary exercises of power. So you have to have a basis in law for any official action. The rule of law is supreme, superior, guides and constrains the power of the state, especially as been exercised by the executive. That's number one. The rule of law requires the maintenance of a positive order of laws. That is, the rule of law presumes there will be laws 
abhors a, a vacuum of regulation. And the relationship between the state and the individual must be regulated by law. So we see this guiding principle um, throughout the course, but the key case and the key rule of law idea to, to really bring with you into this exam is going to be Ron Corelli. Um, Ron Corelli is so important because of the court's decision that no matter how broad it looks like the discretion granted by the legislature to an executive body is, you need to always interpret that, that uh, discretion with reference to the statutory purpose. And they say there's no such thing as absolute or untrammeled discretion. That's sort of the big takeaway. So if you were to see a um, extremely broad discretionary power on your exam, and you were to see a very aggressive attempt to use that, an issue you might want to flag is this raises the Ron Corelli problem potentially. And you might argue that that discretion needs to be constrained by the purpose of the legislation. I actually was working on a Supreme Court of Canada leave application last night. And I typed basically that exact sentence into it, citing Ron Corelli. I mean, it, it really comes up over and over and over again. Um, we touched on a few other cases at this high. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Section 96 court. Yes. So if a tribunal is given such broad uh, jurisdiction that it's essentially a Section 96 court, um, what happens? Does that mean the tribunal just can exist, or is it up to a Section 96 court to decide how much to limit their jurisdiction by? Like, I understand that. This no, that's a great question. I, I see where you're going, absolutely. So there's a few different ways that could go. And this comes down to sort of, it's more of a constitutional law point, but it, it, it's relevant here too. Um, the, the first thing you would do is you would try to interpret the grant of discretion in a way that maintains its constitutionality. So you would say, look, this language maybe admits of a very broad reading, but that would run into the Section 96 courts problem, so I'm going to interpret this more narrowly and try to preserve a constitutionally valid interpretation of your jurisdiction, so you may just get more narrow reading of jurisdiction. If that's not possible, they may strike down the law, declare it ultra vires uh, of no force and effect on the basis that it interferes with the Section 96 court principle. Yeah. I forget that we had the trial lawyer's case against the civil resolution tribunal's expansion of jurisdiction into, um, into uh, motor vehicle issues. And I don't know if I even assigned that so much I might have just talked about it briefly in class. And I, I forget the remedy that was awarded there, but if you're interested in seeing it applied, it's a 2021 decision of Chief Justice Hinkson and trial lawyers, civil resolution tribunal in Canada should pop that right up. Um, so we did talk then about three other cases within this sort of rule of law discussion, Insight, Celgene, and um, Highwood. 
Um, just going to briefly remind us why we thought about those cases. Um, insight, I just liked because it has both sides claiming the rule of law as supportive of their position, showing how that concept is malleable and sort of up for grabs, and everybody tries to say, you know, the, um, the government there said the rule of law demands our drug laws be enforced. Um, the, the opponents of Insight said, you know, the rule of law demands that this arbitrary access of uh, exercise of power that harms people not be uh, allowed to stand. Um, and that case also, you want to remind yourself about it, how we saw the clip where it basically transformed into an admin law case despite counsel's intentions for it not to become one, where the court said, well, isn't this really just a challenge to the exercise of discretion, not to the legislation itself? In essence, they wanted to have the case be the judiciary checking the legislature. But the court, Supreme Court of Canada said, well, I think your problem is really with the executive, not with the legislature. So it kind of, it's a case that illustrates how, um, you know, how important it is to know which framing you're in. And remember in that case, ultimately the remedy was to say, legislation is fine, but the minister, the executive actor, must exercise her discretion so as to allow this exception, this exemption from the Controlled Drug and Substances Act. So that's sort of why we talked about insight and also because we're coming back to it in remedy, so we had it for um, rule of law. The Highwood case, the Highwood Congregation Jehovah's Witnesses, um, I did promise, I think, that the percentage of Jehovah's Witnesses cases would go down. <laughs> they did, fortunately. But the, the Highwood case, you remember, was about, is this even a decision amenable to judicial review and fundamentally, what that case is about is, well, who's in the executive? Who are the people who are exercising state power that can have judicial review brought of their decisions? And in that case, what you had was a private religious organization. So you know, one issue that you might want to think about is just make sure that what we're talking about is even a public actor who can have a judicial review brought. If you're in a purely private, relationship, then the um, remedy would be in contract or tort. Um, Celgene uh, was that case about uh, patented medicine coming out of New Jersey. If you remember, where was the locus of sale? And that question of the locus of sale determined the jurisdiction of the administrative body. Because if it was in New Jersey, then it was outside of the jurisdiction of the Canadian regulator. If it was in Canada, then it fell within the jurisdiction and they could demand the information for that pricing question. Um, I like that case, again, really to land the point we made at the outset about um, the legal formalism and legal realism and different uh, legal issues admitting of more than one reasonable interpretation. We saw the federal court do a detailed analysis and say there's no jurisdiction here. We saw the Supreme Court of Canada do a detailed analysis and say there is jurisdiction here, illustrating how two reasonable people, obviously reasonable people, can disagree on a question as key and fundamental, a question of law as key and fundamental as um, whether there's an existence of jurisdiction at all. And so thereby underscoring, I think, the, um, 
they're setting up the basis really for the, the question of deference on, on questions of law and even questions of jurisdiction. Um, so that was how we covered the rule of law. I'm gonna jump into remedies unless there's any questions on the rule of law points that, um, that are burning. Okay, let's jump into remedies. And so you remember we um, you know, dealt with remedies at the beginning uh, because of the idea that I wanted to emphasize that you need to consider uh, when somebody walks into your office, what can I get, what can I actually do for you within a judicial review framework? Nothing is worse than you win your case, uh, then they go back to the administrative decision maker, they lose again, your client is absolutely livid at you, and if you didn't let them know that that would be a possibility, you know, you've done your client a disservice. So that's a risk they need to understand so that they can, um, you know, decide if they really want to go ahead or not. So we touched on two different concepts of remedy or two different um, issues in relation to remedy. One being at the tribunal level and one being at the judicial review level. So starting at the tribunal level, we asked, well, what are the remedies that tribunals can give you? And we remembered that the remedies that the tribunal can give you are as set out in the statute. So it's whatever the legislature intended to allow the tribunal to do is the remedies they can grant. So remedies at the tribunal level, when you're in the executive, need to be either explicitly or implicitly authorized by the statute. Explicit authorization by statute is obviously not a very difficult concept. If it says you can give this remedy to direct somebody does something, doesn't do something, whatever it may be, excellent. Implicit remedies is much more tricky. Here what you're looking at is, well, in order to accomplish the explicit goal of the statute, what other things must necessarily be also open to the tribunal? So for example, if the tribunal has an ability to give a long forward-looking remedy with um, a chance to review that remedy down the line, it may be implicit that they can have a reporting requirement on the person who's had that order issued against them. Something like that where you couldn't really actually grant the explicitly authorized remedy without this other implicit remedy also being available, uh, that, that's the sort of thing that you're looking at for an implicit remedy. Um, we talked briefly about you know, what is the nature of the remedies that tribunals can, get, can give, and we did talk about how they can be different in nature than the courts. Part of that being the fact that the regulator will have an ongoing regulatory relationship in many cases with the entity who's you know, before it. And so thereby it doesn't have to be in the same way as a court is sort of done once it's made its decision. There's not the same idea of functus. You may have the same decision maker uh, dealing with you for a long period of time. I mean, frankly, I was just just dealing with this question for a friend of mine who's opening a bar on Main Street, Heroes Welcome, we'll give it a plug. And he 
couldn't get his liquor license forever. Like it was incredibly hard because it used to be the Legion Hall on Main Street and it was a very specific liquor license that they had for a club that needed to be changed into a, um, changed into a, like a more normal liquor license. And there was an added complication that the landlord was actually the Vancouver Police Union. And the Vancouver Police Union cannot, um, or the city is in a conflict when it judges, uh, or sorry, when it were issue permits or authorizations um, in relation to the interests of the Vancouver Police Union because of their ongoing relationships. So everything happened on the provincial level, which was making it an absolute mess. So they couldn't get the license. It was a nightmare. He was like, I want you to do something, go lawyer, go do something lawyerly. Um, but my concern is, look, if I come guns blazing, this liquor regulator is gonna be regulating you for the entirety of your bar. So, you know, we need to be more gentle, more cautious, do a more uh, friendly type of approach, and ultimately it worked. But so you do want to bear in mind, you have this ongoing regulatory relationship that's going to affect how you uh, go about your administrative law practice, what's good advice and what's bad advice, and it's going to affect what remedies might be available by the tribunal. You also want to think back in remedies that um, another thing that tribunals may be able to do is do a more broad systemic remedy that looks to sort of fix the problem with the regulated entity or industry more broadly than just answer the specific dispute that comes before it. So there's a potential for broader, more systemic and ongoing remedies within the administrative law regulatory framework. Um, but if you're not happy with the remedy that was granted or not granted, then you step into the judicial review framework and you're really looking at those remedies that come out of those equitable writs. And so you want to have in mind what those key equitable remedies are and what they do. Uh, and those are, in essence, what you could offer your clients on judicial review. By far, the most important one is the certiori. Certiori is that idea, I will quash your decision and I will remit it for reconsideration. So what is the remedy you're most likely going to get for your client? Quash and remit. And you want to have that really squarely in your mind. And of course, you want to advise of the risk that upon the remitting, you may not get a different result. You may not even get a different decision maker. The same person may come to the same result just for different reasons or after giving you a different procedural um, you know, hearing, different procedural rights. So remedies, certiori, like 1A with a big star. That is the remedy that you want to understand the most. Um, prohibition is in essence an injunction saying don't exercise your jurisdiction. The writ of prohibition, where does this come in? Most often to resolve a competing tribunal issue. Two tribunals, both are saying they have jurisdiction over a dispute, or one tribunal is taking jurisdiction despite the fact that it really seems like it ought to be somewhere else. The court can issue a remedy in the nature of prohibition, which says, hey, civil resolution tribunal, you can't decide this. RTB, you can't decide this. 
Mandamus, that's the second most important remedy. Um, I did in not the most logical order. I'd search where I won. Mandamus two, absolutely. Mandamus is um, usually used for the purpose of saying, you are just not making a decision. You are wasting too much time, you're dithering. You're, you haven't prioritized this properly. Just make a decision. I don't care. Yeah, I'm not telling you which way to decide it, but just make a decision. So with my friend's bar, if I was gonna up the ante, that would have been the remedy I would be looking for, to say, you need to process this liquor permit and tell him one way or the other if he gets it. Um, it comes up more often than you might think, and it also um, is gonna be a problem that your clients are gonna often come to you with, hey, I'm sitting in limbo, I can't get another loan because I can't get on my permit, and I'm gonna have to sell my business. You know, you could have huge damages that are potentially gonna be caused as a result of a failure just to make a decision at all. And if you have that client, mandamus is the remedy that you're gonna think about seeking. Um, the remedy of mandamus is sometimes also used to direct a particular result occur. There is frankly some dispute in the, uh, amongst the academics as to whether that really is even um, that proper use of mandamus, or whether that is mandamus coupled with a declaration, a remedy we'll get to in a second. But you do see it sometimes, so I, I, you know, I, I want you to be aware of that. Some courts will say, I issue an order in the nature of mandamus directing you to decide this in this fashion. And when we talk about substantive review in Babylon, we'll come back to the circumstances where the court may in fact direct that a particular result occur as opposed to just remit for reconsideration. Um, so you're thinking you've got mandamus, or your most important certiorari in mandamus, and you've got prohibition. Frankly, I should probably put declaration above prohibition, so we'll talk about that one next. Declaration, the court declares something is or is not the case about the law. It, say the law or laws that applies to these facts requires this. Declarations can be very powerful, and they can be very powerful, especially as against government, because government is expected to comply with any court declaration because of the rule of law. And it's seen as uh, getting towards almost a constitutional crisis if the judiciary declares something and the executive or legislature doesn't abide by that declaration. So declarations are a powerful remedy also, especially as against the government, if you just want clarity that something is or is not you know, permissible under the law. We had two sort of obscure remedies, habeas corpus and quo warranto. Habeas corpus, of course, is, uh, is well known in the sort of popular culture, but uh, it, it basically just demands that, uh, the court demands that somebody who's facing jeopardy comes before them. Uh, it doesn't really come up in a law anymore. Uh, quo warranto is the idea of tell me what authorization you have for this thing that you're doing government. Again, this never really comes up. So you can more or less not review those when you're thinking about your exam. But the remedies you do want to think about, yeah, search URI, um, mandamus, uh, declaration, and prohibition. Um, 
Little nuance, we did touch on it though. It used to be that you had to actually go through the equitable procedures, which were very tricky. The equitable writs had to be pled in a very particular way. There was a lot of uh, cases where the substance wasn't being gotten to because uh, the courts were getting hung up on whether you had you know, fulfilled the equitable procedures properly. That's been done away with in almost every jurisdiction in Canada. Instead, you seek relief that's in the nature of mandamus and the nature of certiorari and the nature of prohibition rather than actually invoking those equitable writs. It's a minor point, but that is a, you know, the, the kind of thing that uh, demonstrates a real deep understanding, I suppose. Um, what's the big remedy you're not gonna get on judicial review? It's money, right? If you want money, you have to start an action. Um, you know, you could, if the if the administrative tribunal is obliged to give you money, like it's a benefit program that you've been unjustly shut out of, you might get an order that ultimately requires the tribunal to comply with its obligation to give you money. But if you say, I didn't get my liquor permit, I had to close down my business, I lost all my investment, you can't go try to recoup that on a judicial review of the decision not to give you a, a liquor permit. You'd have to do that within an action for damages. Yeah, in the back. Um, I had a note in the textbook, it could be wrong, that um, some legislation for tribunals might explicitly authorize the same damages monetary awards. Yeah, so that could. Would that fall under? That would fall under. So, yeah, that's, that's right. That absolutely is possible that some tribunals can award damages. Like the Civil Resolution Tribunal would be an example of that. And there, the court could, um, you know, quash it or omit something to say, go reconsider whether to give this person damages. In an extreme case, they could say there's only one possible outcome here, is that this person gets gets money. So in that case, they would make an administrative law order that has the effect of requiring the tribunal to do something that will give you that, you know, that ultimate monetary relief. But that doesn't. Um, change the fact that when you're looking for damages, as in you, you were harmed by an administrative decision, uh, that's when you're in that you have to go for an, an action. Yeah. Um, so thanks for clarifying that. That's important. Um, important not to get lost there. Like you may ultimately be able to do a judicial review, and that may lead to money coming your way, um, but that doesn't mean that when you are wronged by an administrative decision. You suffered a loss as a result that judicial reviews your path. All right. Um, we talked briefly about the Air Canada case, the fascinating case about the uh, you know, locus of an injury where the person was, you know, uh, had that scare uh, on, a, on a flight over international waters. And you'll remember, though, the, the point that I really wanted to make for that was the court was very clear that the ordinary remedy will be to quash and remit. We will not ordinarily direct any particular result occurs, and that is because, um, you know, fundamentally we are just policing the boundaries of what the executive can do, but we are not in the business of deciding what the executive must do. Sort of the fundamental point to take away from that case. Um, this doesn't mean it's an absolute. 
uh, absolutely never the case that the court will direct what must occur. We had that example in Insight, where the court said, there is no, um, there's no question that denying this exemption is depriving these people of their Section 7 protected charter rights. And so therefore, I do not ask you to reconsider. I direct you to give them the exemption. Um, and we'll talk more about this again when we get to Vavilov, because I think the best discussion is within Vavilov of um, when you should direct the particular result to occur. Insight's an odd case because of the confusion around whether it was a charter action or a true judicial review um, at issue. And we also had the Cotter case. And you'll remember that case was where the court found, well, there is a charter right being violated, but we are not going to direct the executive ask for Mr. Cotter's repatriation. That's the conduct of foreign affairs. They have broad discretion. We are instead just going to grant a declaration this person's rights have been violated, and we're going to trust the executive to remedy that wrong in the way it sees fit and appropriate. So those are that's sort of our run-through remedy. Is there any questions? All right, so let's hop into procedural fairness next. Um, this, along with substantive review, you know, obviously it's going to be on your exam. You're going to need to explain the uh, procedural fairness approach and uh, let's go through some of the big issues that you're going to want to touch on. So one is that a preliminary issue which um, can be easy to overlook but is, is important to always have in mind is, is a duty of fairness even owed in the circumstances? And you had it in the book I mentioned it a few times, we didn't read the case, but Cardinal and Kent is the leading authority on that question. And it's the idea that every public authority making an administrative decision, which is not legislative in nature, and which affects the rights, privileges, or interests of an individual, owes a duty of fairness. So public authority, that means anybody exercising power pursuant to a statute or crown prerogative. Making a decision which is not legislative in nature and which affects the rights, privileges, or interests of an individual. That's who a duty of fairness is owed. That may sound so broad, and it is so broad, that you almost forget about even having the question. But I had a, a colleague call me up with an administrative law problem not too long ago where there was a uh, civil, a city council he represented, and there had been some troublesome people who had been uh, disrupting council over and over again, and council barred them from attending at the council hearings, and um, and he was concerned that they were going to bring a judicial review, alleging this was procedurally unfair, and any decision made by council is procedurally unfair going forward towards them. I said, wait a second. That's a legislative decision. I don't think you have a duty of fairness owed there at all. So it, does, it can come up um, and important to have in the back of your mind. But as you can see, it's broad. Usually, you're going to have a duty of fairness owed if somebody has their rights or privileges affected. And just a tiny caveat, even when you have a legislative, a seeming legislative decision, if it's really targeted at just one entity, like a municipal bylaw passes or a, or a municipal council 
passes a bylaw that's targeted at one particular individual, the courts have said even in that circumstance, you may have a duty of fairness owed. So very limited exception, Cardinal and Kent. So where you really want to think the heavy lifting is, is in thinking, well, what procedural fairness rights does this person want? And what might they be owed? And how do I decide what they may be owed? And I am going to put my notes up for this review. Um, so I don't, I know I'm going fast and I'm hearing fast clicking, but you will, um, and that's good. I mean, I'm sure you're getting some, probably some helpful notes, but you will have um, this more at your disposal uh, shortly. But you want to think about, okay, what rights does my client want? What rights would uh, actually further their ability to let this decision maker know their position? And I'm gonna go through some of the key rights that you may be looking for. The most basic is notice, a right to just know about the hearing. And if there's a duty of procedural fairness owed, I mean, I, I think inevitably there will be a duty of notice owed. That's the most basic right. Um, I can't think of a circumstance where that wouldn't be owed. A slight step up from just notice is a right to know the case that will be put forward. It's one thing to know there will be a hearing where an issue will be determined. It's another thing to know the basis upon which the, um, the, the remedy or the order will be sought. And so a right to notice um, can be, can, or a right to, sorry, know the case can include a disclosure right, you know, a right to disclosure of the materials that's going to go before the tribunal. The next right, I'm thinking sort of a bit of a logical um, flow here, is a right to have a chance to meet the case, a right to make some kind of representation, a right to participate. And again, this is fairly, this is at the very low end. So I know there's a decision that's going to be made. I know broadly what the basis upon which the decision is going to be made upon is. And then I'm afforded an opportunity to participate in some, to some extent. This may be as simple as, well, you get to write a letter and we'll have that before us. That's kind of base level procedural fairness. But if sometimes just knowing what's going to happen and writing a letter, you know, is, is inadequate. And that's when you start moving up the spectrum of procedural fairness. And the big prize that people often seek is the right to make oral representations, the right to an oral hearing, to go argue your case to the decision maker. And it can be very hard to feel satisfied that you've actually been heard you know, without an oral hearing. So this is often what your client's gonna be after. A step up, again, even past an oral hearing is a right to cross-examine witnesses. We saw in the Slaywood Tooth Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion case, that issue coming up in quite a stark way. Other things that you may seek 
a right to be represented by counsel. I touched on this previously, but disclosure can be a broader, more narrow right. It may be that you have a narrow right of disclosure to the high-level submission that, the, that is being offered in support of the decision uh, that is being sought. Or you may say, hey, I want disclosure of every piece of evidence that's being put before this tribunal. I want that well in advance. I want a chance to look at it. So, you know, disclosure, there's, there's uh, a range within the question of disclosure. Time can be a procedural fairness, right? Hold on. I found out about this today, and it's going to happen on Friday. That's no good. I need a month. I need six months, whatever it may be, to adequately prepare and to give my, my views. Time can also come up at the hearing. You gave me 15 minutes for an oral submission. I need a day. You, know, you, you can ask for more time to make these oral submissions. It may not be just um, binary submissions, no submissions. It may be sort of adequate submissions, which may involve time. The next one I'd sort of star is a right to reasons for the decision. And this is that sort of tricky thing where reasons uh, crosses between procedural rights and substantive rights in this post-Babylon world. But I want to be very clear that what I'm talking about here is a procedural right to reasons at all. And it's not about the adequacy of the reasons. It's not about trying to examine whether the reasons can stand in a logical way. It's merely about, hey, do you have to tell me why you made this decision at all? And if you remember, this wasn't a right that was recognized for a very long time. And in Baker, they said, no, we are going to recognize a procedural right to reasons. Then, coming out of Vavilov, you see, wait, these reasons are really going to take primacy in the judicial review context. And we can expect, frankly, the procedural right of reasons to, to be very broadly interpreted going forward. So you want to think a right to reasons, and you want to understand how that can land in the procedural fairness context as opposed to the substantive judicial review context. Um, another procedural issue that we'll come to in a second is bias and the right to a decision maker free of bias or not having a closed mind. So those are just a run through of some of the procedural rights, kind of probably the main procedural rights that you may be looking for your client may be looking for. And you want to think of them as existing on a spectrum with notice and some chance to provide a submission being at the low end, and then full oral cross-examination, lengthy submissions, adequate long disclosure, right to counsel. That's all at the higher end. Um, you want to just briefly know, because you'll see it traditionally, these, these procedural rights are classified under two Latin maxims. You have the Audi alterum partum maxim, here the other side, that's know the case and have a chance to meet it. And the nemo judix in sua causa, the idea that no person should be a judge in their own cause, that's the bias, the bias concern. All right, so if we know what procedure rights you might be looking for, where do you go find them? First place to look, statute. Look in the statute, look in the regs, see if there's something that is directed 
that must be afforded to you. That's the strongest position you're going to be in. Alternatively, there may be something that says you don't get an oral hearing, you don't get disclosure, you don't get reasons. If that's the case, that's going to be very hard to overcome. The only way to overcome it would be a constitutional challenge. You want to remember that you're looking at the statute, but you may also have to look at general uh, administrative law statutes like the Administrative Tribunals Act or the Judicial Review Procedure Act, which may provide more guidance on the procedure that's required. But if it's required by statute, it's required absent a constitutional reason not to apply it. You may also find guidance that's issued, sorry, I'm just to pause, a statute or regulation. Regulation of the same force as statute. Not statute or regulation are guidelines. That's a different thing. The administrative tribunal itself may provide guidance on what process or procedure is going to be followed. If the tribunal provides such guidance, you want to remember it's not legally binding in the same way that a statute is. The tribunal is free to depart from its own guidance. There's a caveat to that, though. And that's the idea of legitimate expectations. And if the tribunal has given you a legitimate expectation that a particular procedure will be afforded to you, and they haven't explained to you, given you notice that it, that is not going to happen, but you, you were led to believe that, it may be procedurally unfair at common law to not give you that process, even if they otherwise wouldn't be required to. So in that way, non-binding guidance, regular, sorry, uh, guidelines, can become in essence binding, at least in your particular case, because you've been given a legitimate expectation. That doesn't mean the tribunal can't say, okay, now going forward, everybody else, you're on notice. I'm not giving you oral hearings anymore. I'm not giving you this. That's the difference. Legitimate expectation, you know, it can affect you, but they can make a change going forward. They can change the guidelines. So guidelines are really a step below statutes or regulations in terms of their binding nature on a tribunal. All right, I'm about to get into the Baker factors. This might be a good time to take a quick break, but are there any questions about um, what we've gone through so far? All right, clearly I'm going through a lot of stuff, so let's try to keep it pretty tight and come back at 11.35. So picking up, um, let's talk about the Baker factors. Um, and a very helpful question at the break, which was, wait a second, legitimate expectations is both a Baker factor and you know, an administrative basis for overturning a decision. Uh, the question was, if you can show a legitimate expectation, does that mean you're done? You don't have to consider anything else? And the answer is no. And the reason it's no gets back to a core idea of judicial review that I ought to have said at the outset, so I want you to not 
treat this as anything less than something that should have gone right at the beginning of today's lecture, and that is that judicial review remedies are discretionary at all times. The court has a discretion to grant or not grant a judicial review remedy. And so therefore, even if you say, I had a legitimate expectation this process would be granted, there could be a constellation of other factors so significant that the court would say, well, even so, I'm not going to exercise my discretion to intervene here. Let's say that there had been extreme delay in bringing the judicial review case forward. There was only a small monetary fine at issue, and you had an internal right of appeal anyways. They might say, look, I know it said you were going to get an oral hearing. They didn't have to give you one, and frankly, in the whole circumstances, I don't think that it's an appropriate place for me to intervene to order you have one. So everything is discretionary in judicial review. Remedies is a sort of guiding principle, and that includes if you've established legitimate expectation, whether you're going to actually get a procedural right. Um, okay. So we talked about these different sources of procedural fairness. We talked about how you may find procedural fairness obligations within the statute itself. You may find them uh, within the regulations. Um, you can make an argument that the Constitution demands a particular procedure be followed. We've seen that have limited success with the Oceanport case, which we'll come back to in a little bit about that. But you know, you, you, could, you could try to advance a constitutional type argument. You could draw upon the Canadian Bill of Rights, a quasi-constitutional document if you're dealing with federal legislation, which is the only legislation to which the Canadian Bill of Rights applies. But really where the source of procedural fairness that you're going to be turning your mind to after the statute and any guidelines is the common law, and specifically the common law as set out in Baker, a case that's absolutely stood the test of time. And you want to have those Baker factors pretty well dialed in. Uh, undoubtedly, I will like you to go through those Baker factors in the exam. It's, it's pretty much a given. So what are the Baker factors? First one, the nature of the decision and the nature of the decision maker. And what you're looking at here, in essence, how much does this look like a judicial decision? Does this look like a decision maker adjudicating between two competing interests in order to resolve someone's rights or obligations? Or does this look like somebody applying for a permit? There's no adversarial context. Or this is merely an investigatory decision. Or this is just advice being given. The more it's an adjudicator adjudicating between two competing parties to make a binding order that affects their rights or obligations, the more likely you are to have high procedural fairness rights. The more it's the latter, it's an investigatory decision. It's just a recommendation. There's no adversarial context, any of those. The less procedural fairness that you're likely to get, all else being equal. The second one, the second Baker factor, 
the nature of the statutory scheme and the role of the decision within it. And this is where you're really looking, hey, is this the final decision in the statutory scheme? Is there no chance for further review, further appeal? If it's the final decision, there's a greater chance that you're gonna have more procedural rights. If it's an interim decision or a decision that has a right of appeal uh, within the statutory scheme, the lower the procedural protections. We illustrated this a number of times when I talked about how the workers' compensation regime is designed, where there's a worker compensation board whose job is just to get a ton of applications and get them mostly right. But they design it to have an internal appeal to the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal, WCAT, who gives you more procedure, gives a more exacting look, and that way they can sort of pick up the errors that might get made in the quicker determination at the lower level. You can see why that makes sense. Let's get it right most of the time. Sorry we get it wrong sometimes. We'll give you a better, closer review if you're unhappy. Um, that's the type of considerations that would come in at this second Baker factor level. Third Baker factor, importance to the person affected. And it's a huge spectrum. And of course, every client is going to say that their issue is extremely important to them. I'm helping out some family friends, and God help me, it's a $225 dispute at the Civil Resolution Tribunal. I'm like, I give you $225, this is not worth my time. But it's principle, they're, very, like, they're, they're angry, and so I'm like, all right, whatever, let's have some fun. But that is not very important. <laughs> Can you stay in Canada if you're Mavis Baker with your kids, get, your, get the, the treatment that's helping you cope with some disabilities you have? That's important. You know, they're, they're, that's at the high end of the spectrum. So the importance, um, there are many different types of things that can be important, uh, but you want to have a, a realistic appreciation of, are we just talking about a little bit of money or a privilege, not a right, that's being sort of taken away from you? Or are we really talking about something that's fundamental, core, and is going to cause permanent harm to you if we get it wrong? Uh, the fourth factor is legitimate expectation. We've gone through that, but I want to emphasize the nuance that there is both procedural and substantive legitimate expectations that you may need to consider. Procedural expectations is where I say, I will give you an oral hearing. I say that in a regulation. Something like that. I give you a legitimate expectation. A particular procedure will be followed. If I do so, it may be unfair to not give you that procedure. A substantive legitimate expectation is when I lead you to reasonably believe you're going to get a particular outcome. You're going to get that liquor license. You're going to get that uh, permit to build that mine. I am not bound by substantive legitimate expectations to give you that result. I can change my mind and say, you know what? Sorry, you're not getting a liquor license. Something came up. However, I may have a procedural obligation to let you know why I might change my mind and give you a chance to meet it. So that's the little nuance. There's substantive and procedural legitimate expectations, but substantive legitimate expectations only lead to a procedural right. 
It's not a right to a substantive outcome. So they're both procedural, but the, the nature of the expectation that's arisen is different. It's a little tricky. Um, the final Baker factor, the choice that the procedure, the choice of procedure the tribunal's made itself. If the tribunal has clearly set out that we're not going to provide this type of a, a process, that's entitled to some weight within the analysis. I think on the principled footing that the tribunal knows what processes do and don't work are and are not necessary, and all things being equal, if the tribunal's decided that a uh, you know, particular process is not needed, and there's the court sort of, eh, I can go either way, that might tip the balance to say no, that, that process isn't required. It sort of introduces some concept of deference to the tribunal's own experience into the analysis. But it doesn't overwhelm the other factors. How do you decide where you are on this sort of spectrum? How do you balance different factors against each other? There's no magic to it. I can't tell you. Uh, we see that in, um, I forget which case it was, but I thought it was a very stark one of the cases looked at recently, where they, oh, I think it was in the, uh, in the uh, Slaywitchuth case, where they just said, well, there's all these factors, and some go one way, some go the other way, and I say no. Uh, there's not really much more to it necessarily than that. So, you know, I think that the best answer on an exam would probably set out the factors set out which factors you think are most important, set out which way you think that this is likely to go, but set out that there may well be a risk that the court will decide you know, to balance the factors differently if they're pointing in different directions. Yeah, you could have the clearest case where you have every factor pointing towards more procedural rights and all your client wanted to know was notice, well then you probably have a clear-cut case to say yes, that notice needs to be provided. But if it's a right to an oral hearing, you have some going one way, some going the other way, you know, provide your explanation as to how these factors you think will interplay against each other, which are the most important ones in this particular context, how you think the court will go, but um, showing that you understand that this is not going to be cut and dry and that different judges may disagree on that, is going to show a deeper understanding of the material. Um, I touched on the intersection between the right to reasons and the Vavilov that we're getting to in a second. It's very important. Um, the standard of review on these fairness questions we looked at in that Bergeron case, you may briefly remember, a federal court case. Fundamentally, the um, it's a little bit in flux as to whether it's a correctness review or whether there's this other standard of fairness that you're really reviewing. Fundamentally though, what I think you want to keep in mind is if the court is convinced that you were not provided a fair process, they won't defer to that. They will require that that be done over unless the legislature explicitly authorized an unfair process in the exact way that you were provided an unfair process. So the standard of review is really, it's besides the point, I think, within the procedural fairness context. It's, a, it's an issue that the academics are debating, but doesn't really matter. 
You have to convince the court you were not provided a fair process. If you can do that, you'll get to try again. If you can't do that, you know, good luck in the substantive review because you're, you're out of procedural fairness. Were you provided a fair process is the fundamental question. Okay, I'm moving, moving quickly. I do anticipate I won't get through everything I wanted to get through today, and so my hope was to spend most of next class on the exam, a bit of it finishing up this review. Um, tribunal independence is the next issue I want to touch on. Um, we talked about tribunal independence as the concept of how independent must the adjudicative arm of an executive body be from other actors within the executive. And we remember that there's these hallmarks of judicial independence. Security of tenure. You know, you can't fire me for anything if I'm a judge except for gross misconduct as, you know, found by the Judicial Council and as confirmed by Senate and the House of Commons. Well, tribunal members don't get that kind of protection, right? Some of them are at pleasure. We had that nuclear um, official who was, seems to have been fired because she kept the plant closed. Or not, no longer the president of the tribunal. There's also the financial security. You know, judges have that great rule they made up that they get to be paid, you know, $350,000 a year. And the tribunal members don't necessarily get that. They may be getting $60,000 or $70,000 a year. So Ocean Port, we had that case where the question of, well, is that a constitutional problem to have a tribunal be designed to not have these hallmarks of independence? And specifically, it comes up often in security of tenure. And the court said, no. You know, it's not a constitutional guarantee to an independent tribunal but rather uh, it is something that the legislature can, if it explicitly um, designs, it can choose to create a less independent tribunal, not giving that tenure, not giving that financial security. So institutional independence it's very close to the question of bias. That's sort of the, they are separate ideas. You could argue that an institutional design is not sufficiently independent in the absence of any direct statutory provision requiring that, and you might be able to get a remedy, regardless of whether you could show bias. So what I mean there is what you'll often see for an institutional independence concern is one where you have a body that has both an adjudicative arm and a prosecutorial arm. You get in trouble with the law society, the law society prosecutes you and investigates you, and the law society adjudicates whether or not you've committed misconduct. Same body two arms. That is explicitly provided for in the Legal Professions Act, so it does not run afoul of a constitutional principle. It's, it's a, you're allowed to have that design. But if you had a tribunal that was not designed in that fashion, 
For example, the residential tenancy branch does not have a prosecutorial arm in the same way, but they were to on their own volition say, you know what? Landlords have the upper hand in all of these disputes. Let's get a sort of amicus. Let's appoint somebody who's just going to argue on behalf of tenants in every single dispute. You could see somebody doing that. It's not insane, but that might really fall into some uh, independence issues where you have this tribunal creating an um, advocate who's advocating within its adjudicative arm. You know, it could create an independence problem. Um, so it is possible to argue an independence problem in the absence of direct statutory uh, requirement that that is how the tribunal be, be structured. That's what independence is all about, is that kind of high-level structuring of the tribunal. Bias is about whether a decision maker or the tribunal generally seems to favor one particular outcome, one particular type of litigant. And you're running into the procedural fairness problem of Nemo, Judix, and causes sua, that no person should be a judge in their own cause. Nobody should have an interest in which way decisions go if they're going to make those decisions. So when you're thinking about bias, you want to A, understand the nuanced difference between it and institutional independence. And then you want to understand there's two strains of bias, individual bias and institutional bias. And so that you know, gets confusing. Institutional independence, institutional bias, different concepts, uh, closely related. But you know, that is how it breaks out. When you're thinking about individual bias, is this decision maker biased against me? There's really four um, sort of high level categories of issues that may cause this concern to legitimately arise. You could have a pecuniary or material interest in the outcome of the matter being decided. Does it actually directly affect your financial or other interests that we decide a matter in a particular way? You remember there was a, uh, a case of a band council who had evicted somebody from housing in order to put a relative of a member of the council in that housing. Now that's a type of a thing where you're going to say, well, there's a real concern that you are interested in and you get a benefit from deciding this in a particular way. The second one is a personal relationship to the people involved in the dispute. Hold on, that's, that's your old law school chum who's asking for this result. And, and you know, I, I can't uh, be confident you've given me a fair hearing when it's your friend who's, who's being involved in this dispute. The third one is prior involvement or knowledge in the dispute. We had the WeWayCom case we talked about briefly in this context where Justice Binney had uh, been involved as a lawyer in the very dispute that came before him at the Supreme Court of Canada. That case was found not to raise an apprehension of bias, but I said that's really the exception to the rule. Generally speaking, if you've been involved in a case as counsel, you should not decide it as a decision maker, be a judge or be an administrative decision maker at all. And the idea is you're ordinarily, you're supposed to consider what the parties put before you not your outside knowledge about the case or your prior um, opinions about the case. And the final one 
is an attitudinal predisposition towards an outcome. Yeah, I just don't like these people and I want to get a particular outcome in relation to them. You know, that's where you see the real classic ideas of bias. You know, you are racist, sir, and you don't like minorities, and I can show you that minorities do not fare well before your tribunal. You know, those, those types of more real classic core bias issues. That's also obviously an area where tribunals are realizing that they may have thought they were a lot less biased than they actually are. Um, an empirical study, which I think I pushed enough, but I'll do it one last time, does often show that there is more inherent and implicit bias in these tribunals um, you know, as against women minorities than you know, I think a lot of people would like to admit. So it's an area where you're gonna see a growth um, in, in probably adjudication of these bias issues. But so you wanna think, if I wanna allege individual bias, I'm looking broadly at those four different categories of bases upon which I can do so. Pecuniary material interest, personal relationship, prior involvement or knowledge, or attitudinal predisposition. I'm trying to formulate an argument, generally speaking, that a reasonable person informed of the circumstances would say that it is more likely than not that you are unable to fairly decide the case. That is, that reasonable person would have a reasonable apprehension of bias. That's the standard. It's not that you actually are biased, it's that a reasonable person would think you're biased, right? There's a slight uh, nuance to that as there is in everything in admin law, basically, in that if you have a purely investigative function or a really high-level political decision-making function, you may not have to satisfy the reasonable apprehension of bias test. You may only have to show you don't have a closed mind. We saw that in the Crutchian case where the court went uh, in some depth as to whether or not the closed mind or reasonable apprehension of bias test should apply. And we talked about it in the context of, you know, if a decision maker has campaigned on, I'm gonna develop the oil sands, and they ultimately have a um, approval before them for a new uh, oil pit, uh, or sorry, a new uh, oil sands mine. Uh, you may not be able to say, well, look, you, you favor oil sands, so recuse yourself from this high-level decision. The court may say, no, that's the type of high-level policy decision that you campaigned on, and you're implementing your political, uh, the political will of voters, and as long as you don't have a closed mind to arguments against this particular mind, you're so that's the nuance there. The default is a reasonable apprehension of bias test unless it's a really high-level political decision or you have a purely investigative function. That is, you're just investigating, somebody else is gonna take all the facts and uh, adjudicate them. Okay, so that's individual bias. The next one is institutional bias. Institutional bias is when you say, I'm not saying that you, individually, decision maker, can't give me a fair hearing. What I'm saying is that there's something that causes a concern that uh, there will be a bias that permeates your structure. And this is, of course, it can be difficult to differentiate this between institutional independence and institutional bias, but they are different concerns. And perhaps when you think about the circumstances in which an institutional bias may arise, that may become more clear. 
So for an institutional bias to arise, um, it's often something where there's been a, uh, a decision or a policy or something in, within the tribunal which seems to favor a particular result in a number of different cases. And we had a few examples in the book about the types of things that might give rise to this. We had full board meetings where all the decision makers get together to talk about charting a path for the tribunal. Those are pretty fraught and those can lead to a concern that well at that meeting you decided that you were getting too many of this type of review of immigration matters from these types of people and you know you try to set some processes going forward that are going to limit how much that drains your tribunal's resources, which gives me a reasonable apprehension of institutional bias. You know, full board meeting, when they all get together, you start to worry the individual decision maker's discretion is being limited. Uh, lead cases, that's where they say, okay, we're going to decide this once and for all, uh, this type of a case in this factual pattern. And we had a case there, an example, where the federal court said, hold on, you set up that lead case in a way that seems to uh, favor the government as against these asylum seekers and is going to lead to prejudice against all the other people who may have different individual factors in their cases and are going to be prejudiced by this lead case that decision makers are expected to follow. Um, we talked about tribunals participating in the legislative process and then being asked to opine upon that legislation. You know, we talked about uh, how tribunals can be asked to evaluate the constitutionality, et cetera, of legislation. Cardi Chicks, we'll get to that in a second. So, you know, if you participate in designing legislation and then you're asked to abide upon the constitutionality of legislation, that could be a problem. Um, and we talked about multifunctionality. This is the idea of the law society having the prosecutorial arm and the decision-making arm. Um, well, that may be institutionally okay, Oceanport, in practice you may find, hold on, there's too much back and forth between the adjudicative and the prosecutorial arms. This is giving rise to an idea of institutional bias. While you may have an okay institutional design, the way you're carrying it out is causing me to be concerned you're biased. Just there's a little more nuance into that difficult distinction. Um, so let's just pause on bias. Are there any questions on, on bias? All right. Um, I do want to say that like, I know I'm flying through this, and I hope that mostly this is making you feel like this all sounds familiar and triggering kind of memories that we've gone through in the course. I'm sure someone's like, oh, crap, I don't remember that at all. Um, that's fine and absolutely normal. But I also know that the questions are going to come probably like December 10th to 15th when you're really getting into the material a bit more. And I'm 100% happy to um, answer questions by email. I'm frankly even more happy to, um, to, if you want to get together and do a conference call or like a little Zoom session to go over a few ideas. Um, it's a little easier for me to talk things out often than to type things out, especially when the idea is kind of complex. So um, don't hesitate to, to reach out. I really am happy to do so. Also, don't um, you know, I, I'm trying to be very fair and I'm happy to review things. I'm not going to give anybody extra information on the exam or anything like that. And uh, if there's something that I think, you know, really benefits the rest of the class, there's an idea that I think, oh God, I should have covered that in the review or that's a nuance that really is important. 
Um, I will send it up to everybody. You'll get an email saying, hey, here's an issue. Yeah. Like clarify my question, just going back to reasons. Is yeah. it required in all scenarios just if it's affecting a right um, because of statutory appeal or other reasons, right? Sorry, a right to reasons? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that's really coming out of Baker that they say that you basically have to consider whether in all the circumstances there is a, a right to reasons. It may not arise, and we had the Trinity Western University case as a case where there wasn't a right to reasons found. Um, but what your the factors you've said are all issues that would strongly suggest a right to reasons. I have a hard time articulating exactly what the test is for a right to reasons right now because I think the winds are very much blowing that more cases are going to be found to have a procedural right to at least some reasons. But what you'd want to say if you have a question as to whether or not there's a right to reasons, you want to say that you know this is a procedural fairness right that was found uh, to exist in Baker. The court will be guided by the Baker factors and determine as a right to reasons. These are the Baker factors. Um, the, you know, the the importance of reasons has been highly uh, elevated since Vavilov, and as a result, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a, there's an expectation that more tribunals are found to have an obligation to provide reasons. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Cite that. Cite that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, cite that, but with the nuance, if you want to really show the deep understanding that you think post-Babilov, uh, that, that test will be you know, more easily met. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about delay. Um, So the leading case on delay for right now is Blanco. I suspect you're gonna get the rug pulled up underneath you if you learn Blanco really well because the Supreme Court of Canada did hear um, the appeal in the uh, Abrametz decision, Law Society of Saskatchewan, I think, and Abrametz, which is the court's uh, opportunity to revisit and reconsider Blanco. We'll see what they do. Um, my wife was an intervener in that. I was going to show you her intervention. I ran out of time, and she was so happy that we ran out of time. <laughs> but you can find it. Um, uh, you should, like, yeah, get... It's definitely worth clicking around the Supreme Court of Canada's website and figuring out how to watch those videos yourselves. It, it is a useful tool. Um, I really, really like it if you can watch the judge you're appearing in front of advocate. It just, for some reason, to me, you feel like you know what's gonna make that person take a lot more when you see them act as an advocate. Um, so yeah, if you wanna find her, she does it for the AGBC in that Abramitz case. Um, okay, so Blanco is the, um, the leading case for now on when delay will require an administrative decision be set aside or be stayed, saying, look, you just don't even bother anymore. You've wasted way too much time. There's a high bar to a Blanco application being successful. It needs to be one of the clearest of cases is the uh, sort of the buzzword you're gonna see in Blanco, clearest of cases. And mere delay and even a mere 
really long delay without more is not enough to get a Blanco remedy. That's, that's really key stuff to have in your mind. You need two, one of two additional factors beyond your delay to get a Blanco remedy. The first is the delay itself has compromised fairness. If you can show, hey, memories have legitimately faded, key witnesses have died, I simply cannot defend myself in this circumstance at this time, that may be adequate, or that will be adequate to get a, a remedy for delay. And inevitably, the remedy will be a stay or to set aside the decision. If they say that this wasn't fair, it can't have been fair at this point. But if you can't show there's been a compromise of fairness, you could still get a remedy if you show the delay has been so inordinate, so excessive, that it has tainted the proceedings. Effectively, they're saying, look, in the eyes of the public, will they say, well, this can't be a just outcome to have decided this matter at this time? And what they'll look is whether the delay itself has caused significant psychological harm to a person or attached a stigma to the person's reputation, such that the system will be brought into disrepute if this type of a process was allowed to be followed. Ultimately, it falls under the broad category of abusive process. But what's really important is you have to tie the stigma to the delay or the psychological suffering to the delay, not to the underlying conduct that led to the administrative process. You know, you were accused of sexual misconduct. That's where the stigma is coming from, sir. It's not that it took eight months to decide it, it's that you were accused of sexual misconduct. That's where all the bad news stories are coming out of. That's why you're in mental health treatment. You know, that's the type of thing that's not going to get you a Blanco delay remedy. But you were accused of sexual misconduct. And for the last eight years, you've had no chance to, uh, to vindicate yourself. You've lost your job. You've been suspended from the practice of your profession. And this has caused you um, to suffer all these serious psychological distresses. Well, that's, um, it's the delay that comes, or the, sorry, the harm uh, that comes from the delay itself that matters. But don't, it's not that base level of just being accused of sexual misconduct. It's the added portion that's directly attributable to the delay that will be considered in clinical analysis. That's the nuance there. Yeah. So would there, I guess, like as an example, there'd be a little bit of a difference between losing your job right away after this uh, accusation occurred versus losing your job five, five years in? When things have been building up. That's a great, yeah, absolutely. That's a great point, exactly. If you lose it right away, what did you lose it for? You lost it because of the, uh, uh, the accusation. You lose it five years in, what did you lose it for? You lost it because the accusation had never been decided. Yeah. That's, that's a really, that's a good way to think of the nuance. Um, and it may be 
that you've been suspended for so long, and like a, a suspension pending determination is a classic place to find some specific prejudice. Okay, so, so you need to find that something extra, compromise fairness or serious psychological harm or stigma that comes from the delay itself. You also need to find inordinate or unexplained delay though. So what delay is gonna rise to that level of being inordinate, unexplained? Well, there you have to do a sort of contextual analysis of what you'd ordinarily expect for something, you know, an administrative decision of this nature. You wanna think about the nature of the case, its complexity, the facts and issues that in dispute, you know, what kind of investigation do you really need to get your head around these facts? The purpose and nature of the proceedings, whether the person complaining about the delay has contributed to the delay. You, know, you can't search my home, uh, I'm gonna fight you on that. It was a baseless fight and now it's been two years and you can't complain about that two years. Or whether there's been a waiver of the delay and this is quite often where you'll see lawyers just screw up, where they're really happy to just push things down the line a, because whatever shoe is going to drop on their client, at least it's not going to drop today, it'll be six months from now, it'll be a year from now. And B, you know, lawyers are busy, and if you, get a, if you have a window to say, all right, well, this is not a today problem anymore, this is a six months from now problem, you know, lawyers will jump at that sometimes. So then you, you say, ah, oh, it's been three years, let's argue delay. And they say, well, no, you were very agreeable all along the line. You did nothing to ever push the matter forward. You clearly let us believe that you were amenable to deciding this later. You have now waived the delay. So you want to think about, um, you know, when you're acting for somebody, if you don't press the matter forward, you're sacrificing your ability to argue delay. All right. Um, so that's Blanco. And so I think I'll cover one more issue um, today, delegation, and then I'll leave sort of a review of the Vavilov framework and the charter and admin law for, for next course. Those are all fresh in our minds, so I, um, I think I can go pretty quickly through those. Um, but delegation is probably one that you're like, I remember we lectured on that and that one is fuzzy. Um, it's an important concept though, and I do want to, to cover it again. So delegation in one sense in admin law is everything in essence, everything, some power being delegated from the legislature to an executive actor. So the idea of delegating authority, well, that's just core administrative law. But you also sometimes have the power, uh, a power delegated, specifically a power to make regulations. Right? A delegated authority to make these regulations, which look in essence like law. And so you want to know, when you're thinking about regulations, generally they're on the same level as statutes in the sense that they're legally binding and we give them force by the courts. 
But the, the nuance there is that this regulation can itself be challenged on judicial review on the basis that this regulation that was passed was outside of the power that was given to the executive to make regulations in the first place. So a decision to issue a regulation is itself an administrative decision that could be challenged on judicial review, looking at what's the scope of the legislative power to make regulations, and does this regulation fall within the scope of that power? That's, in essence, the same question you're asking in the municipal law context when looking at a bylaw. Is that within the power that was given to this municipality by the legislature to make bylaws? Bylaws are very much just regulations by another name. Yeah? Can you challenge um, statute based on a constitutional challenge? Can you also challenge regulations by that same logic? Absolutely. That's a great question. Yes, you certainly can. So if you could say to a tribunal, um, don't apply this regulation uh, because it's outside of the Constitution and it's this like cutty chicks type argument. You could also go to court and say that that regulation making power is unconstitutional and that it's broad and it seems to authorize things that are unconstitutional. Or you could go to court and say, I challenge this specific regulation as being unconstitutional. So yeah, you absolutely could. Um, so generally though, challenging a regulation on judicial review is very difficult. The first problem you run into, gonna be hard to argue procedural fairness. And the reason why we talked about at the outset, issuing a regulation is sort of a legislative in nature decision. So generally, you're not going to even have a procedural fairness duty owed. Unless the regulation is something that really specifically targets you, you're going to be stuck with substantive arguments, not procedural arguments. Then when you get into the substantive arguments, you're facing a strong presumption of validity. And it's not about the wisdom of the regulation. You can't say this regulation is dumb, it's killing my business, and it's not accomplishing anything practically valuable. That type of an argument is not gonna get you anywhere. Rather, the words that you see in the jurisprudence are irrelevant, extraneous, or completely unrelated to the statutory purpose. Irrelevant, extraneous, completely unrelated. These are the types of concerns that you would say, oh, hold on, that regulation, it's out of left field. It's not doing anything connected to the purpose for which the legislature gave you this regulation-making power. So for example, if there is a toxic substances regime that gave the minister the power to list new toxic substances as prohibited as they you know, more becomes known about them, but then you were to, to use that to you know, list substances that you thought contributed to an eyesore or something like that. They weren't toxic at all. 
might say, well, look, you, you can't just start listing substances that are not toxic. You're, you're completely outside of the purpose of the regulation or the purpose of the power that you've been given. So you want to think, you can challenge regulations on judicial review, it's hard. Um, the other thing you want to think about with regulations is this question of fettering. And um, we talked about it briefly again last class, I believe, or two classes ago. But it's the idea that um, with a uh, something below a regulation, sorry, I think I missed one before, I said something below a regulation, when you're talking about guidance, internal guidance that is being given by a um, you know, tribunal issuing, it cannot issue guidance which fetters its discretion, which says, well, you know, I know that I am able to grant all these remedies, but I don't want to give those remedies in these types of circumstances. Here's why. Here's my or my uh, guidance saying I won't give those remedies in these circumstances. And if you wanted one of those remedies, you know, in one of the circumstances prescribed by that guidance, you could be able to say, hey, you've fettered your discretion. You were granted a broader discretion than you're willing to exercise. That's contrary to legislative intent, and uh, you know the court should declare such. So that's the idea of fettering, that the tribunal cannot limit its own discretion in a way that wasn't intended by the legislature. Um, all right, so the final point I had in these notes was the coming back to the Section 96 question on del So this is all within the broad framework of delegation, and you can't delegate so much power, the legislature can't delegate so much power to the executive that you've, in essence, created a Section 96 court. Just, again, you can think of that as falling within the delegation um, broad framing, if that's helpful for your mental mapping. So let's pause there. That was a, a huge, um, just sort of, run through, um, sorry that, you know, so much information, hopefully it was somewhat helpful. We will pick up, move relatively quickly through the uh, last three topics. Um, so standards just review the courts, Aboriginal law and administrative law. Um, briefly talk about federal court, but not much. Um, and I'll touch on the standing issue one more time really quickly, but we've gone through that. I really want to spend most of the next class talking about the exam. Um, I do really welcome questions, especially in the next sort of 48 hours before our next class starts, because uh, it would be great to be able to pick up any questions with the whole class. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to look through the exam, certainly probably worth doing so. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's great. Thanks so much, everyone. Well, and if you haven't done the, uh, the course evaluation, if, if you could 